Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi there, Hit Parade listeners. This is Chris Malanfi with a short disclaimer. The show you're about to hear was recorded live in Seattle earlier this month at the Museum of Pop Culture. It was an amazing night. However, due to a technical issue with the mics on stage and our recording equipment, we had some audio issues. In the recording you're about to hear, in a few spots where I am talking over a song clip, I am a little hard to hear. We've left in just a few of these spots, which are fortunately pretty brief. We've also re-recorded some of our guest intros where the audio was not up to snuff. So, if you hear a few spots where the audio sounds different, that's why. We did have a fantastic night with amazing guests and a lively PopCon audience, and hopefully our enthusiasm comes across here. And now, on with the show. Please give it up for Chris Malampy. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine, about the hits from coast to coast, coming to you live from the Museum of Pop Culture, aka Mopop, in Seattle, Washington. I am Chris Melanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series, and also a proud presenter at the Pop Conference, Mopop's annual gathering of music academics, critics, journalists, and all-around obsessives. We are here on the final night of PopCon 2019, and as you can hopefully hear out there in podcast land, I am being joined tonight by a couple of hundred friends and colleagues. Say hello, friends. I want to take just a moment to explain to my listeners why I am so honored to be hosting an episode of my podcast right here. But maybe it is best explained by a man who has, on occasion, called himself King Nerd. So naturally, I'm a fan of Seattle's Rock and Roll Museum that keeps the music alive with their annual pop conference. It's a weekend-long music festival in the tradition of Woodstock and Coachella, but instead of jamming to your favorite band, you're jamming to a series of panel discussions and presentations of scholarly papers. You know their motto, less rock, more talk. <laughs> well, this year's Pop Conference has so many amazing dissertations. Once again, my scholarly paper did not make the cut this year. <clears throat> they have rejected Self-love in an elevator, Apollonian images of hedonism, eroticism, and the mechanized urban landscape in post-comeback Aerosmith. <laughs> if you can believe that. I, for one, would have loved to hear that Aerosmith paper. And as would-be presenter Stephen Colbert noted, PopCon is indeed where music geeks go to probe the inner workings of what makes music tick, dissecting the art and the science of this populist craft. Does this sound familiar? 
More than once, fellow critics have told me they think of Hit Parade as a monthly popcorn paper turned into a podcast. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Indeed, two years ago this month, I announced the launch of this podcast right here at this conference, just moments before delivering my 2017 popcorn paper. <clears throat> Colbert would have a field day with this one. Lifting my voice, plugging one ear, a charts-based history of the charitable celebrity mega single. Three months later, that paper became the fourth episode of Hit Parade. And a couple months after that, my 2011 PopCon paper, <clears throat> Singles Going Steady, the record industry's vacillating relationship with the retail single is reflected in a half century of the Billboard Hot 100. That became Hit Parade's great war against the single edition. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Bottom line, if you've been enjoying this podcast, you have been listening to PopCon content without even knowing it. I personally have been attending PopCon for just over a decade, since 2008. But the conference dates back to 2002, when it was founded by academics and critics Eric Weisbard and Ann Powers. Thank you, Eric and Ann. And sponsored, let's hear it for them. And sponsored by the Experience Music Project, now renamed Mopop. And for most of its 18 years, it's been held every April right here at the museum's super cool building right next to the Space Needle. Designed by Frank Gehry, Mopop resembles nothing so much as a Jimi Hendrix smashed guitar. I will not be the only music writer up here dropping science on you all tonight. I'm going to be joined by six pop conference presenters, all esteemed writers in their fields, for mini conversations about the legendary artists we're going to discuss in this episode. It's the kind of party only a bunch of cerebral culture vultures could possibly throw. It's a dead man's party. Every year, the conference organizers pick a theme, a broad topic around which all of the discussion will revolve for that year. This year's theme, chosen by our fearless PopCon leader, Charles Hughes, and his organizing committee, is Only You and Your Ghost Will Know, Music, Death, and Afterlife. I ain't afraid of no ghost. I'm playing that song to lighten the mood. As PopCon themes go, this is one of the more provocative and morbid. But I will admit, I was pretty psyched when I heard that this would be the theme for the PopCon where I would be doing a live show. Because, as you may have heard, rock and soul have generated no shortage of material from and even about the great beyond. David, it looks death. like morning. Every, I mean, looks... every, every, every movie in every cinema is about death. Death sells. I but think the... he's right. There's something about this that, that, that's so black. It's like, how much more black could this be? And the answer is... None. None's good. black. Mm -hmm. you're, like, you're like rationalizing this. Spinal Tap manager Ian Faith has a point. Crass as it sounds, death does sell. We have decades of chart evidence to back us up on this. I'm going to present some of that evidence tonight, and as in our last live show in Brooklyn last year, I will also be inviting my live audience here in Seattle to take part by answering some trivia questions. So without further ado, and at the risk of literally trivializing the rock and roll afterlife, let's get this Night of the Living Dead party started. Posthumous hit is specifically defined as a song or an album recorded by an artist that makes the charts after his or her death. Depending on how many charts you look at, there have been dozens, perhaps hundreds of such hits. From Eddie Cochran, who died way back in 1960. 
Now there three steps to are three steps to heaven. Just last year, Miss Aretha Franklin. like this, the public collectively decides to focus their grief at the loss of an artist on one particular work, a song or album that takes on new resonance in the wake of their passing. Indeed, speaking of wakes, this chart activity serves, as a, serves a ceremonial purpose, a mass-scale eulogy. Often it happens immediately, and in the 21st century, now that the charts are powered by instantaneous digital data, Billboard will often report sales or streaming figures just days after a death, wherein the deceased's material rises by thousands thousands of percentage points. Tracking these posthumous chart moves might seem crass, maybe even a bit gruesome. But the evidence is also revealing. When confronted with the loss of a well-known artist, what of their work do we organically gravitate towards? How do we celebrate and mourn them? When George Michael died on Christmas Day 2016, unsurprisingly, his most played song at radio that day was Wham's perennial and now sadder than ever, Last Christmas. But who might have guessed a few days later that the most downloaded song would be his contemporaneous Wham ballad, Careless Whisper, its suave sax now suddenly turned sorrowful. When Tom Petty died the following October, many of his most played tracks were fairly predictable, such as the wistful free falling or the defiant at the gates of hell, I won't back down. But I was charmed in that first week to learn that among his five biggest posthumous sellers was his 1994 stoner dude hit, You Don't Know How It Feels. It's very title now sounding like an encomium. We will march our hit parade to nine different weeks and test your knowledge of the songs Americans requested, bought, and streamed in order to pay their respects. Let's get right to the first question. We're going back to the 1950s and, predictably, the so-called day the music died. And I promise that is the last time you will hear that shop-worn phrase tonight. So I understand that nine of our live attendees tonight have been given numbers corresponding with our nine trivia questions. Can I get contestant number one? Hi. Hello. What is your name? I am Jennifer. Jennifer, thank you so much. Uh, how about a big welcome for our first contestant? <laughs> and away we go. Of these rock legends, who's the only one who wrote a hit that reached number one on the Hot 100 after February 3rd, 1959? A, The Big Bopper, B, Buddy Holly, C, Richie Valens, or D, Don McLean? Uh, I'm going to go with D, Don McLean. Oh, I'm sorry. The correct answer is C, Richie Valens. But thank you so much for playing. So, choice D was extraneous. On American Pie, his hit, Don McLean sings about the fateful night that permanently joined these other three men's fates. On February 3rd, 1959, they boarded a doomed four-seat Beechcraft Bonanza airplane taking off from Mason City, Iowa, bound for Moorhead, Minnesota, a destination they would never reach. Also fairly easy to eliminate is choice A, J.P. Richardson Jr., a.k.a. The Big Bopper, who is essentially a one-hit wonder, albeit a pretty great hit. Hello, baby. Yeah, this is The Big Bopper speaking. 
the uh, portly Jolly Bopper earned his legendary status for Chantilly Lace, enshrined at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It did make the pop top 10, peaking at number six in November 1958. But the Bopper was having a hard time following it up. His even more self-referential single, Big Bopper's Wedding, barely scraped the top 40 at number 38, and its flip side, Little Red Riding Hood, peaked at number 72. That leaves two candidates for posthumous hitmaking, Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. Obviously, Holly's catalog of hits is an American treasure trove and a blueprint for so much of what rock would become in future decades. Among these three, Holly was the only one to score a chart-topping hit while alive, peaking at number one on Billboard's Best Sellers in Stores chart, a precursor to the Hot 100, with That'll Be the Day on September 23, 1957. Finally, Richie Valens. Not only was the young man born Ricardo Valenzuela the youngest of these three, just 17 the night of their fateful flight, he also had something special chart-wise, a hit that spanned the weeks before and after the plane crash, his tender ballad, Donna. It was at number three the week of the incident, but it reached a new peak of number two three weeks later. Given how much slower the charts were compiled in those days, this February 23, 1959 peak was essentially immediate. Donna was both Valens' final hit and his first posthumous hit. The single's B-side, slotted there out of a belief that it would be a tougher sell on Anglophone radio, was Valens' rocked-up cover of the old Mexican folk song, La Bamba. It was potent enough to chart in its own right, peaking at number 22 in the early weeks of 1959, just before the plane crash. But decades later, that song would become even more famous when two of the three stars from Rock's first major tragedy were enshrined at the cinema. Both Holly and Valens were the subject of rock biopics decades after their deaths. Holly's arrived in 1978 with director Steve Rash's The Buddy Holly Story, a biopic that won nearly universal acclaim for the Academy Award-nominated lead performance by Gary Busey. Yes, that Gary Busey. Yes, an Oscar nomination. And Busey won the National Society of Film Critics Award for Best Actor. Besides renting the movie, you can still watch Busey's performances as Holly on YouTube, and he is indeed impressive, actually singing and playing himself and fully embodying the young Holly. Nine years later, in the summer of 1987, came director Luis Valdez's La Bamba, the story of Richie Valens, starring Filipino-American actor Lou Diamond Phillips, who, like Busey, was considerably older at the time of filming than the deceased rock star he was playing. La Bamba was more of a popcorn picture, earning no nominations, but generally acclaimed for Phillips' performance and its portrayal of Chicano culture. Both movies were modest hits, earning a multiple of their respective budgets, and both spawned soundtracks, but one soundtrack was a curio, the other a phenomenon. Despite arriving in the same 1978 summer that turned Grease's 50s nostalgia into a blockbuster LP, the Buddy Holly Story soundtrack, 
featuring Gary Busey's performances of Holly's material, stalled at number 86 on the album chart in a fairly brief chart run. It split the market with a near simultaneous compilation of Holly's own material with the Crickets, 20 Golden Greats, which wound up charting modestly higher at number 55. That Holly LP would eventually go gold. The Busey album, not so much. In theory, a decade later, La Bamba should have done not much better. It, too, was a soundtrack filled not with original tracks, but with covers. Perhaps the crucial difference was that these covers were not by actor Lou Diamond Phillips, although he does lip-sync in the music video for the film's title track. That track was performed with furious energy by East L.A. band Los Lobos, who took both the La Bamba single and album to number one on their respective charts. As the album went double platinum in the late summer and fall of 1987, Richie Valens had never been more popular. And for simply revamping a Mexican folk song from Veracruz, he earned sole writing credit on a Hot 100 number one hit. It is a curious thing how the public will embrace an artist who feels fresh and new to them. By the 1970s, Buddy Holly was a radio staple, and for all of Busey's acclaim, his Holly mostly felt like an actor. A decade later, a Chicano artist who died younger and with a much smaller catalog had the whiff of the new to Generation X, a legend hiding in plain sight. Richie Valens, in every intersectional sense of this word, was being seen. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuchs and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Um, what is your name? I am Will. Thank you for participating, Will. Uh, you ready for your question? Bring it on. Here we go. What artist scored the Hot 100's first ever posthumous number one hit in 1968? A. Otis Redding, B. Keith Moon, C. Janis Joplin, or D. Jimi Hendrix? Don't think it's B. Keith Moon, so I'm down between A, C, and D. Mm -hmm. uh, A. Otis Redding. That is correct. <laughs> Nicely done. What you want? 
Now, Otis Redding first topped the Hot 100 as a songwriter while he was still alive. That happened when this classic song, Respect, was famously turned into a feminist anthem by Aretha Franklin. Her version of Redding's song hit number one in the summer of 67. But prior to his passing, Redding had gotten no higher on the Hot 100 than number 21, with his 1965 Otis Blue classic, I've Been Loving You Too Long. I've been loving you. And even after his legendary Monterey Pop Festival performance in the summer of 1967, all of Redding's singles on Stax Records and sister label Volt fell well short of the top 20 on the pop chart. But that same summer is when Otis began writing the song that would change everything. So I'm just gonna sit on the dock of the bay Watching the tide Sitting on the Dock of the Bay was not only Redding's sole number one as an artist, on both the Hot 100 and the R&B chart, it was his only top 20 pop hit and remains his perennial radio standard. But Redding would not live to see its chart-topping success. Two days after recording the song in December 1967 with co-writer and guitarist Steve Cropper, Redding's twin-engine plane crashed near Madison, Wisconsin. Three months later, for the week ending March 16, 1968, Dock of the Bay was at number one, the first posthumous chart-topper in Hot 100 history. To talk about this artist and song, I'd now like to bring up the first of my esteemed guests. Emily J. Lordy is the author of Black Resonance, Iconic Women Singers and African-American Literature, and the 33 and a Third series book, Donnie Hathaway Live. Her music and book reviews have appeared on such sites as The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Our Own Slate, The Root, The Fader, and The Los Angeles Review of Books. She is an associate professor of English at UMass Amherst. Would you please help me welcome Emily Lordy? Uh, so, Emily, you've written about Otis Redding before, most specifically a wonderful Atlantic piece about 1966's Try a Little Tenderness, in which you position that song very persuasively as a civil rights-era song of resistance. Yet, Dock of the Bay is almost the opposite of that, a deliberate attempt by Redding to cross over and very different from his prior work on Stax and Volt. Can you talk about where Redding was at in 1967 and what inspired him to write this song? Sure. So in 1967, I think we see Otis both at the height of his powers um, and also very hard at work. So I think of 67 for him as almost what you often refer to on the show as the imperial period, right? right? That he's on the verge or on the brink of that, that moment of incredible creative explosion and experimentation where an artist can kind of do anything and his fans will go with him. Um, Dock of the Bay is a good example of that. Um, it does show him experimenting with a slightly different kind of aesthetic and a sparer kind of more folksy aesthetic. He's drawing on influences like Dylan and the Beatles um, at that time. Um, but, you know, he's come off of and has gained confidence from this incredibly successful, first of all, European tour that he does earlier, um, the previous year, right, with the Stax Review. And then also, of course, his famous, just 
you know, incredible performance at the Monterey Pop Festival, um, as you've noted. And so, you know, he's working really hard and that, you know, that hard driving kind of gruff sounding soul that, that we hear in respect, satisfaction, try a little tenderness, you know, his really like show stopping, um, bring down the house closing song of his live sets, try a little tenderness, has taken its toll on his voice. And so he needs to get um, surgery on his vocal cords. And so he does, he has to rest, um, rest his voice, rest his body for a solid five weeks, at the end of which he goes into the studio and records Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, which is a song that he had started earlier when he had been um, in San Francisco for the Monterey Pop Festival. Um, so I see this as being about, you know, Otis at work. And, and in some ways, I do see it as a song of social commentary that's in some ways about uh, day laborers, you know, if we think about the speaker of the song, not just as Otis writing himself, um, but as this kind of persona of somebody who's left his home in Georgia, headed to the Frisco Bay, he's sitting there, you know, 2,000 miles from home, like, what has brought him out here, right, if not the promise of work, and as I see it, kind of, a, a, you know, work on, on the docks, which might not be available at this particular point, so what is there to do, what form of resistance do you have, you know, um, except in some cases just sit there and rest and to think and so I see this as Otis resting himself resting his voice um, and you know just in that way actually creating a very different kind of artistic statement when you hear Doc of the Bay today where do you place it in the legacy of Otis Redding well, it's interesting to me because I think this is often seen and music critics talk about this song as being this authentic expression of Otis Redding's true self. He's bearing his soul, he's really upset or he's sad. And, you know, people also see it as a premonition of his death, that it's a prediction, right, of, of um, the fact that he is about to die really only a couple weeks after recording the song. Um, but I see it in some ways as, yes, it's about Otis. As I said, it's about his work, his life as a working musician, right? And the way in which musicians are laborers. They are itinerant laborers, right? They're going where the work is. They're going out on tour. And so I see it as a kind of social commentary um, about what is required, particularly of black artists in an industry that is often built on black labor. And I see it that way in part because Otis commented on that, um, on the kind of conditions of black workers both on and off stage. So there's a recording that he does at the Whiskey A Go-Go in Hollywood in 66, where in the midst of this really intense, kind of hard-driving set of hits, he stops and he says to the audience, do you see how hard we have to work to eat? Do you see how hard we have to work? Um, he also apparently, you know, proposed the idea of an all-black entertainers union to James Brown. And he said, we should band together, yeah, to stop getting exploited by these you know, white promoters and managers and all the people in the industry. James Brown refused to uh, join forces with him for his own complicated reasons. But the point is just that that was Otis's dream. You know, that was one of his dreams. He wanted to own his own label. He wanted to produce his own stuff. He wanted to be his own boss. He wanted to stop being in the position where, as the person sings in the, as the speaker sings in the song, he's got ten people telling him, you know, what what to do, right? Um, and so I see sitting on the dock of the bay as, in some ways, you know, about that, uh, resisting that, you know, saying if if I can't do anything else, at least I can rest for a minute, you know, just sit here and think and not be at everybody else's beck and call. And finally, I'll, I'll just say too that 
for that reason, we can see Otis as working in this kind of mode of introspective soul. So we tend to think about soul as this like big, spectacular, bombastic performance of the charismatic, especially um, male figure, right? Sam and Dave's, you know, and Soul Man, and Hold On, I'm Coming, and these kind of big songs, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. But, you know, there's also this quieter, more introspective soul aesthetic that Otis Redding is embodying here. Um, this moment where you're just kind of turning inward, you're having a soul-to-soul conversation with yourself, figuring out kind of what you need to do to go forward. And in that way, we can see Otis as a kind of forerunner to the kind of different soul aesthetic that's going to emerge in the late 60s and 70s, like in Al Green and Isaac Hayes and Minnie Riperton. He's an unlikely kind of precedent in some ways um, to that. That's excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That was exactly Pleasure. what we needed. Can I have contestant number three? It's here for. Hello. What is your name? Sari. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, are you ready for your question? Sure. All right, here we go. What early 70s smash became the second ever posthumous number one hit? A, The Carpenters, Superstar. B, Jim Croce, Time in a Bottle. C, Elvis Presley, Burning Love. Or D, Janis Joplin, Me and Bobby McGee. So I have absolutely no idea on this. That's Complete fine. stab in the dark. I'm going to go with D, Janis Joplin, Me and Bobby McGee. That is correct. Very nicely done, sir. Written by Chris Christofferson in 1969, based on a suggested title by Monument Records founder Fred Foster, Me and Bobby McGee was not penned for Joplin. In fact, by the time she got to it in late 1970, it had already been, in two short years, a country hit for Roger Miller, a Canadian hit for Gordon Lightfoot, and an album cut for everyone from Kenny Rogers in the first edition to the Statler Brothers. Christofferson's own 1970 version, later used in the Monty Hellman Road movie Tulane Blacktop, is also so memorable. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing ain't worth nothing. But, but Joplin's chart-topping 1971 smash has basically overshadowed Feeling all other versions. To talk about this indelible recording, I'm very fortunate to have Janice's biographer as my guest. Holly George Warren, in addition to writing Janice, Her Life and Music, coming this fall on Simon & Schuster, is also the author of a dozen-plus other books. Holly teaches at the State University of New York at New Paltz. Would you please help me give a warm welcome to Holly George Warren. So I read an interview with Fred Foster where he said he originally couldn't picture Janis Joplin, a hard rocker, doing Bobby McGee, which at root he heard as a tender country song. How did she wind up with it? And besides, obviously, the female perspective, what did Janis bring to the song? Well, basically, her doing that song was a return to her roots. Like Chris Christopherson, she was a native of Texas. And she started out performing, doing hillbilly songs, blues, you know, country in Austin, Texas, when she was a student at UT in 1962. And she had 
become known, yes, as a, a she was a screamer, a piece of my heart, which was actually an R&B song by Irma Frank, uh, sung by Irma Franklin. You know, she became known as this screaming, you know, over the top, raw, emotive singer. But by the time she started recording the songs for Pearl, she was learning to use more restraint in her vocals. Now, the way she got that song, it's a crazy story, but her manager, of course, was famous Albert Grossman, also Bob Dylan's manager, and also the manager of Gordon Lightfoot. Now, this amazing character in rock and roll history, Bob Newworth, who was known for, you know, the aide-de-camp of Bob Dylan, had become that same role for Janice. He was hanging out in the office one day with Grossman. Gordon Lightfoot's in there playing guitar and plays me and Bobby McGee. And Bob Newworth's like, what is that song? I got to learn that song. I got to show this song to Janice. He had dinner that night with Janice. They'd already made a date. She always stayed at the Chelsea Hotel. He went to meet her at the hotel, played her this song that he had just learned from Gordon Lightfoot. And she's like, oh my God, I love that song. And she immediately, she had a Gibson Hummingbird guitar and learned to play the song. And she ended up playing it for the first time, actually. This was in um, 1969. She was still in the Cosmic Blues Band at that time, after she left Big Brother and the Holding Company. She ended up playing it for the first time in Nashville at the fairgrounds there. And the crowd went nuts. And, you know, of course, she introduced it by this guy, Chris Christopherson. Y'all might not know him, but he's going to be big. She did it again in Austin, Texas. And then she finally got to meet Chris Christopherson. Woo! That was, uh, she liked him a lot. <laughs> I think a lot of people liked Chris Christopherson yeah. at that time. Yeah. But she, she really, um, she got the spirit of that song. She really got it. And she used a different kind of Janice voice. Janice had a lot of voices. So given that you have just finished a biography of Janice, uh, thanks for the advanced copy, by the way. I'm so excited because it's terrific. Thank you. How do you feel Janice's biggest hit reflects her life? I mean, have too many people reduced Janice to me and Bobby McGee, or does it reflect her artistry and her voice? Um, it definitely shows how she could do so many different things with her voice. With the lyrics, though, I mean, it really sometimes just gives me a chill. She really did hitchhike from Austin, Texas, with a guy named Chet Helms in uh, 1963, way before she joined Big Brother and the Holding Company. She went out to San Francisco for the first time to try to make it as a blues singer, playing in coffee houses. And she first met Jerry Garcia and Norma Kalkinen then, at that period. And she really did snuggle with, you know, Chet, and they got, you know, rides picked up by truckers and stuff like that. So she really did live the words to that song. And they were seeking freedom. Uh, Texas was very repressive then. Um, she grew up in a segregated town, Port Arthur, Texas, that uh, she was, uh, you know, couldn't handle living there. And she loved San Francisco for the freedom that it offered her. So when you hear me and Bobby McGee on the radio to this day, I mean, given now your kind of close relationship to Janice, it, does it fill you with a certain nostalgia, a certain affection? What, what enters your mind when you I hear it? I just turn it up, baby. <laughs> <laughs> now, and luckily for me, I live in Woodstock, New York. So my station, WDST, plays a lot of Janice Joplin. So I'll hear Peace of My Heart blasted. I'll hear her doing with her um, the Cosmic Blues Band doing maybe the Chantel song that she loved as a young girl growing up in Texas and the way she did that song. Um, you know, a couple of other posthumous, um, you know, semi hits, they, right. they did chart, um, Get It While You Can. Now that one I tear up because 
those words do seem very prescient for what sadly happened actually before she finished recording all the tracks for Pearl is when she um, accidentally overdosed on heroin and died. Holly, I can't thank you enough. This is great. Really appreciate well, it. Thanks for having me. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Right. Oh, Lord. Moving won't on you buy to me question four. Do I have contestant number four in the audience? Hello. Hi. And what is your name? My name is Chris. Oh, love that name. Yeah. <laughs> Easy to remember. Uh, Chris, are you ready for question four? Sure. All right, here we go. What John Lennon hit already in the top ten in early December 1980 soared to number one after his murder? A, just like starting over. B, woman. C, watching the wheels, or D, nobody told me. Wow. I think everyone knows this one, but I don't. Um, let's go woman. I'm sorry, that is incorrect. The correct answer was A, just like starting over. But thank you, Chris, for participating. Just like starting over. Starting over. The singles from John Lennon's 1980 album, Double Fantasy, Starting Over, Woman, and Watching the Wheels, are among the most famous posthumous hits ever, given that Lennon's death remains the most media-covered and convulsive rock death of all time. One of these hits, Woman, Lennon's homage to collaborator and wife Yoko Ono, remains his adult contemporary radio standard to this day. But, as this trivia question implies, some may forget that the album's lead-off single was already shaping up as a pretty major hit even before the former Beatles' tragic death on December 8, 1980, at the hand of assassin Mark David Chapman. Just Like Starting Over was a cheeky homage to the rock and roll of Lennon's youth, with John on the verses doing his best Elvis impersonation. Starting Over was already number six before Lennon's murder and rising into the top five the week he was killed. We will never know how well it would have done in a parallel universe where Lennon was not taken away from us at age 40. But as the lead-off track to a very gentle, reflective album that would soon become Lennon's epitaph, the ironically titled Starting Over holds a singular place in rock history. To talk about this Lennon hit, I'd like to bring on as my next guest, Jack Hamilton. Jack teaches in the departments of American Studies and Media Studies at the University of Virginia. He is also my colleague at Slate, where he writes about pop, rock, and hip-hop music, sports, and other areas of culture. Jack's essential first book, Just Around Midnight, Rock and Roll and the Racial Imagination, was published to great acclaim in the fall of 2016. 
would you please help me welcome my colleague and good friend Jack Hamilton? So, Jack, you've written extensively about rock and roll and its tropes. And this hit is all trope, a song that wants to sound like the 1950s, and it's coming out in 1980 at the start of the post-disco backlash. How much of this was Lennon just feeling nostalgic, do you think? And how much of this was him channeling the culture to score a comeback hit? That's a great question, uh, and thanks for, thanks for having me, Chris. Um, I really think it's mostly nostalgia. Uh, Lennon was a real, was a hardcore nostalgist um, and had been for for really his whole career in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the, the album, the solo album that he made prior to Double Fantasy, um, which isn't even a solo album because it's it's co-credited to him and him and Yoko, really. Um, but it was Rock and Roll, which came out in 1975, which was an album of covers and, you know, covers of, of rock and roll songs from the 50s and early 60s, basically. Um, and you, if you go back and read interviews with him, um, you know, particularly the very famous 1970 Rolling Stone Lennon Remembers interview, you know, he talks about like, you know, rock and rolls just like peaked with a whole lot of shaking going on. And we're all trying to get back to that. <clears throat> even when he's talking about the Beatles, he says like, oh, you know, we were at our best before we even started recording. You know, that was like, we wanted to, right, to right. get back to that. Um, so, so definitely that nostalgia thing. Another thing, like in terms of the anti-disco thing, Lennon, by his own account, had been really kind of checked out of music for the last five years. I mean, again, it had been five years since he'd made his last album. He'd been spending a lot of time in, you know, basically as a house husband, um, raising raising um, Sean. And he gave an interview to Playboy right, basically right before his death, a very lengthy interview to uh, David Sheff. And he says that he's all he's been listening to is Muzak and classical music. <laughs> and I don't really know if that's totally true, but like, um, I don't think that he was really plugged in enough to be sort of like calculatedly tapping the zeitgeist to be like, oh, this is what's going to what's going to sell. And lastly, I would just say that, you know, um, I'm personally maybe more of a I'm, I'm much more of a Paul guy than a John guy. But like we're out like there tap it, tapping, tapping into the zeitgeist kind of cynically to, to make that hit. That's a Paul move. <laughs> And you say that as a as a devoted Paul fan. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's 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 a Paul move, not a John move. <laughs> fair, fair enough. So it has always seemed difficult to me to take this single and album out of their tragic context and assess them properly. I mean, opinion on them swung widely both back then and in the decades that followed. Almost forty years later now, where do you think starting over and double fantasy sit in Lennon's oeuvre? Can we finally just regard them as music? No, I think. I mean, I think it's it, it's always going to be kind of impossible to separate them from their context. Um, the great critic Simon Frith, shortly after Lennon's death, wrote an obituary for him, or sort of a eulogy in um, New York Rocker magazine. And Frith has this amazing line where he says that John Lennon was the only rock singer who could sing the word "we" convincingly. Which I mean, it's just an incredible thing to say, <laughs> and it's just like, and 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 just like starting over is a we song, you know. And there's an aspect of of it that I think resonated with his fans. Where obviously he's singing it presumably to Yoko, you know. It's it's a love right. song, but it's got that, you know, I, you know, it's, it's the word we. I think is in its opening lines, or or, or that sort of um, first person plural construction. Um, and there's this way that this song kind of registers as him. Like, you know, you can almost hear it registering with his fans as sort of like a, a there's an intimacy to it. Um, 
And it's also just, I mean, I don't know, the circumstances around John Lennon's death are just so sad. And there's something about double fantasy. When it came out, it was, when it first came out, it was kind of received, uh, had got kind of mixed reception. Right. And a lot of critics kind of knocked it for being, you know, it's like, oh, it's just this middle-aged guy talking about sort of being happy and kind of bored, <laughs> which was, was something that it got knocked for at the time. And like, in, in retrospect, is one of the most charming aspects of the album. You know, I mean, I think of certainly watching The Wheels, I think is, is actually an even better song than this one. Uh, significantly better. Partly because it's so, it's, it's about such an interesting topic, which is basically being middle-aged, you know, and being this sort of like I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round and it's kind of fun you know and like everyone thinks I'm crazy because I'm not really doing anything but you know this is this is what I'm choosing to do and that's like an interesting thing to write a song about um yeah so I mean I really think that um yeah it's really it's really difficult to sort and it's also just such a moving document of his relationship with Yoko and his sort of love their love for each other and thinking about Yoko as someone who just put up with so much abuse from his fans and sort of rock fans you know a lot of which was very sexist and racist and a lot of it was just sort of fans being kind of obnoxiously proprietary over this this idol of theirs you know this sort of equal part album this double album that's sort of half his and half half hers and just the way that it's just this really expression of a really uh, romantic but also very adult type of love and devotion is just is it's really special and you know it's not a I don't think it's a, it's a perfect album by any means. Um, and there's, you know, but at the same time, you know, like if you want to ding it for like it's, I personally don't think it's super well produced. Um, it definitely sounds like an album that's made by someone who hasn't made music in five years. Um, but like that said, I mean, like I feel like a jerk for, for saying that, <laughs> you know, just I, th- I think that was so, everybody's feeling. Yeah, too. yeah. I mean, it's just sort of, um, it's really hard to separate it from, from, the, from the context. I think it always will be. That it's, it would be impossible to write a review of this album that, that doesn't reckon with the fact that he dies, you know, weeks after it comes out. Jack, thank you so much. That was extremely helpful. I'm just sitting here watching the wheels go round and round. I really love to watch them roll. No longer riding on the merry-go-round. Hello. Hi. And what is your name? Carrie. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Are you ready for question five? I am. All right. How long after the death of Freddie Mercury did the movie Wayne's World debut in movie theaters? A, less than two weeks. B, less than three months. C, more than a year. Or D, more than two years. I think I'm going to go with C, more than a year. I'm sorry, the correct answer was B, less than three months. But thank you so much for participating. (laughs) To be exact, it was 82 days between November 24th, 1991, when Freddie Mercury died of bronchial pneumonia resulting from AIDS, and Valentine's Day 1992, when Wayne's World opened. This story I'm about to tell is not captured in the recent Queen biopic, also called Bohemian Rhapsody, which ends in 1985, six years before Mercury's death. Of course, a lot of things about the band were not captured in that blockbuster, now Oscar-winning film. But why quibble? 
It's such a true-to-life picture. Other than the fact that <clears throat> Queen weren't broken up prior to Live Aid, Freddie's solo album didn't upset the band, Fat Bottom Girls didn't come out in 1974, John Deacon wasn't part of the original band, We Will Rock You was released in 1977 when Freddie had no mustache, Freddie met his partner Jim Hutton at a club, and Freddie didn't reveal his HIV status in 1985. It's a perfectly entertaining movie. This is PopCon. We care about the details here. <laughs> the film ends well before the improbable second act of the song Bohemian Rhapsody in Wayne's World, although it is alluded to by the casting of Mike Myers in a small cameo as Ray Foster, a record executive who also did not exist. But the omission of the song's 1992 comeback is a bit of a pity, because as true stories about Queen go, Bohemian's second act is one of the best. In early 1991, before anyone outside of Queen's inner circle knew Freddie was at death's door, Paramount Pictures greenlit a movie based on Wayne's World, a series of wildly successful Saturday Night Live sketches depicting Wayne and his buddy Garth on a cable access TV show. Lead actor Mike Myers had always planned for his Aurora, Illinois dude bro character Wayne Campbell to headbang to Bohemian Rhapsody. The shooting of the film was reportedly and infamously tense, with Myers at one point even threatening to walk if if Rhapsody could not be cleared for use in the now famous car scene. I think we'll go with a little Bohemian Rhapsody, gentlemen. Good call. Yeah. I see a little silhouette of a man. He's got a moose, got a moose. Will you do the fandango? Thunderbolts and lightning, very, very frightening. Galileo. When the members of Queen were approached by the Wayne's World producers for clearance of the song, guitarist Brian May brought the video clip that they furnished of the headbanging scene to lead singer and bohemian songwriter Freddie Mercury. The ailing Mercury was reportedly charmed and buoyed by the clip, which he felt captured the comic, manic spirit of the original song. He approved the clearance for the film. In essence, Mercury, while still alive, was about to not only give a second win commercially to his most famous composition, he was writing his own epitaph. As I noted in our Hit Parade episode about the history of the UK Christmas number one competition, Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody was a massive British hit. Just before Christmas 1975, in its original release, it topped the UK chart for nine weeks, setting a record at the time as the biggest selling British single ever. It would return to number one at Christmas 1991, just after Mercury's death, for another five weeks. The second UK run was a bit smaller, but then the first was so massive to begin with. But here in America, the story was the opposite. Bohemian Rhapsody was a bigger hit the second time, arguably the biggest posthumous re-release in Hot 100 history. You see, in the mid-1970s, Queen were slower to break in the States. It took until mid-1975, more than a year after their UK breakthrough, for Queen to even make the US Top 40 with Killer Queen. One year after that, in April 1976, Bohemian Rhapsody was Queen's top 10 U.S. breakthrough. Casey Kasem counted it down. American Top 40. First time in the top 10 for Queen from England at number nine, this is Bohemian Rhapsody. Is this the real life? Number nine was as far as Bohemian got in that 1976 run. 
But 15 years later, the one-two punch of Mercury's November 91 death, a gut punch you might call that, and the more joyous February 92 release of Wayne's World, now an unplanned tribute to Mercury, would make Bohemian bigger than ever. However accidental all of this was, Queen's label and promotional team did take full advantage of the coincidence. And MTV played a key role. The original 1975 music video for Bohemian Rhapsody was innovative for its time, six years ahead of the official launch of music television. After Mercury's death, MTV put the old 75 clip back into circulation. Then, in the winter of 92, Queen's American label, Hollywood Records, furnished a new version of the video that juxtaposed scenes from Wayne's World with mournful, worshipful shots of the now-deceased Mercury. With MTV Power rotating both videos, Queen re-entered the Hot 100 in March 1992, one month after the movie hit theaters and 16 years after the song's first Hot 100 run. Seven weeks later, Bohemian Rhapsody reached a new peak of number two on the Hot 100, sandwiched between the number one Jump by Criss Cross and the former number one Save the Best for Last by Vanessa Williams. The Wayne's World soundtrack topped the album chart in May 1992, powered by Queen's classic single. Speaking of classic Queen, a month later, a compilation by that title reached the top five. In short, six months after Freddie Mercury's death, aggregating all of this chart activity, the hottest band in Billboard in the spring of 92 was Queen. Was this the real life? Was it just fantasy? Never one to shy away from the limelight, Mercury would have been proud. Right, we're going to move on now to question six. Can I have contestant number six? Hi there. Hi. What is your name? I'm Paul. Paul, thank you so much for participating. Are you ready for your question? I think so. All right, here we go. A decade after the death of Karen Carpenter, which 90s alt-rock act scored a top 30 modern rock hit with a cover of a Carpenter's single? A, The Cranberries, B, Sheryl Crow, C, Four Non Blondes, or D, Sonic Youth? Mm. I'm going to say Sheryl Crow, B. I'm sorry, the correct answer is D, Sonic Youth. Written by Bonnie Bramlett and Leon Russell, Superstar has been recorded many times, but no version was a bigger hit than the version by Superstar sister-brother duo The Carpenters, whose deathless version reached number two in the fall of 1971. Three years later, in the fall of 1994, the Carpenters were the subject of a quirky but loving tribute album, If I Were a Carpenter. The album served as Generation X's posthumous tribute to Karen Carpenter, who had died more than a decade earlier, in 1983, from heart failure associated with anorexia nervosa. 
The album offered affectionate covers from all of the artists I cited in that trivia question, plus American Music Club, Shonen Knife, and Betty Severe, among others. Karen Carpenter is also the subject of a brand new book from my next guest, whom I am honored to bring up now. Karen Tonkson is the author of Why Karen Carpenter Matters. I was lucky enough to see an advanced copy, and it is a powerful and moving book. She is also the author of Relocations, Queer Suburban Imaginaries, a professor at USC, and co-editor of the award-winning book series Postmillennial Pop. You can also hear Karen talk about the arts, entertainment, and popular culture on the delightful weekly Maximum Fun podcast, Pop Rocket. Would you please help me give a warm welcome to my dear friend and mutually proclaimed 80s girlfriend, Karen Tonkson. I want to focus our discussion on the Carpenters' 90s rehabilitation, because unlike the other acts we're discussing today, the Carpenters scored all their big hits when Karen was still alive. This tribute album was sort of Karen Carpenter's posthumous moment. But I think you and I, as Gen Xers who appreciated Karen and Richard's music the first time, both have mixed feelings about this hipster reevaluation. So how did you feel about If I Were a Carpenter in 1994, and how do you feel about it now? In the historical parlance of homosexuality, of which I very deeply identify, um, from the 19th and 20th century, uh, there is this notion called a beard. And If I Were a Carpenter was the sonic beard to my shame about like loving the Carpenters in the 90s when they couldn't be loved openly for a period of time. And so once like all these amazing bands who were accepted and loved in that period, adored them and made these covers, uh, I felt completely safe and cloaked in in like my shame around the Carpenters from that album. So that, that that's what I have to say about that. So has it aged well? I mean, did you did you like it better then? Do you like it better now? Well, I have to say, like you know, I enjoyed the album then. I felt it was a great cover, cover of covers, right? So it's like it's an album of covers that like made. Uh, so many identifications possible. Right. Because in the 90s, I think that we were all searching for different versions of authenticity. And, you know, however we want to frame that historically or whatnot, um, like once that album came out and there were these kind of dour uh, reassessments of these Carpenter songs, Sonic Youth's cover being of Superstar being one of them, uh, you know, you had to like really kind of rethink, okay, well, it's much deeper than that frothy A&M studio, big like horn sounds and great arrangements situation things. Uh, but in the end, like I fundamentally found the tracks on If I Were a Carpenter, um, the ones that I found most salient to me were the ones that were closest to the spirit of what Karen and Richard did in the original. And so... You know, sorry, folks, the Sonic Youth version of Superstar, eh, I'm not into it. Um, and, you know, I much prefer something like Betty Servert's For All We Know. That's a good one, yeah. Or, or even the Cranberries, God bless you, Dolores O'Riordan. Uh, yeah, her version of Close to You, their version of Close to You um, was much closer to my spiritual affiliation. A quarter century after If I Were a Carpenter, and especially after writing this book, where would you locate her and their legacy? I think it's about the reassessment of our own relationships to music broadly. I mean, it's a way 
bigger thing than just saying, oh, people like them, people don't like them. But I think that like the way we assess acts like the carpenters, if not explicitly the carpenters, says as much about our desires for how we feel, we relate to music, how much we invest our own levels of coolness or acceptance around who we like, who we proclaim we like. Despite the fact that I argue why Karen Carpenter matters, uh, in the end it's like the legacy of their music is about the stubborn attachment that we all have to this music that moved us, that made us feel a certain way, but that we disavow because of various reasons. And it doesn't just apply to them as artists, but to others who we disavow. I just want to, and I, I hope that we don't need an album like If I Were a Carpenter to validate the loves that we have around popular music, around the sentimental attachments that we feel when we are coming of age, and that Karen Carpenter, as an example, can just like allow us to, I don't know, feel like that, that joy, that attachment, that pleasure in the voice that gives us the things that we feel and love. Well, I certainly co-sign all of that. Karen, thank you so much for thank joining Thank you so me. much, 80s boyfriend. <laughs> Can I get the contestant for question seven? <laughs> Hello? Hello. What is your name? My name's Erin. Erin, thank you so much for joining us here tonight. Uh, you. Are you ready for your question? Yes. All right. On Nirvana's MTV Unplugged in New York, Kurt Cobain played three covers backed by artists who originally wrote and performed them. Which of these was not one of them? A, The Man Who Sold the World, B, Plateau, C, Oh Me, or D, Lake of Fire? Oh, good Lord. <laughs> I'm gonna have to admit I've never seen the MTV Unplugged Nirvana. That's a bad thing, I know. Um, <laughs> no, no, no shade. <laughs> but I'm gonna... I'm Canadian, come on. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna say D, Lake of Fire. I'm sorry, the correct answer was A, the man who sold the world. But thank you so much for participating. Erin. To face, to face, the man who sold the world. The key to this question is knowing whom Kurt Cobain had on stage with him the night of the MTV Unplugged concert. Kurt and Chris Kirkwood of the Meat Puppets. Cobain chose to cover three of their songs, Plateau, Oh Me, and Lake of Fire, from their 1984 psychedelic cowpunk album, Meat Puppets 2. Many a hand has scaled the grand old face of the plateau. Some belong to strangers. Cobain did not have on stage with him that night David Bowie, whose Man Who Sold the World Nirvana performed earlier in the evening. Last fall, when I asked Charles Hughes, organizer of the pop conference, if this year's theme of music, death, and afterlife had been chosen specifically because PopCon would fall immediately after the 25th anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death, he told me it was just an uncanny coincidence. When I got over my chills, I realized we would have to commemorate what I and many critics feel is rock's most famous self-directed funeral. 
recorded live in November 1993, and rebroadcast practically on a loop on MTV in the days after fans learned on April 8th, 1994 of Cobain's suicide, Nirvana's MTV Unplugged was a unique, fully conceived swan song. I know I am not the only Gen Xer who assuaged his grief re-watching this performance. When it was released as the album MTV Unplugged in New York later that year, it not only debuted at number one on the album chart, typical for Nirvana after their breakthrough, it was ultimately certified five times platinum, on a par with their studio album In Utero, and second only to the totemic ten times platinum Nevermind. Given the timing of our show tonight, I am especially fortunate to have as my guest Charles R. Cross, who has written nine books, including The Great Heavier Than Heaven, the biography of Kurt Cobain, a New York Times bestseller and winner of the 2002 ASCAP Award for Outstanding Biography. He is also the author of Room Full of Mirrors, the biography of Jimi Hendrix, and was the co-author with Anne and Nancy Wilson of Kicking and Dreaming, a story of heart, soul, and rock and roll. Would you please welcome Charles R. Cross? One of my favorite anecdotes about Unplugged from your book was the MTV producer who asked Cobain whether the black candles and stargazer lilies he requested for the stage were, you mean like a funeral? And Cobain responded that that was exactly what he, what he wanted. Um, in the quarter century since this event, have you come to any conclusions about Kurt's own self-awareness that night? In other words, did he at some level know he was stage directing his own memorial service? In some ways, I don't think he did. I mean, remember, Kurt dies April 5th, 1994, and he had had near-death instances throughout his life. There are at least 10 that family members talked about, and there's an overdose in March in Rome. But I think there was the sense that he knew he was coming to the end of his addiction, that that, that sort of meaninglessness of what that life was at that point I think he felt at the end of the run. It was the end of Nirvana. That's one of the things that people do not talk about. Nirvana was basically broken up at the point Kurt died in many ways. Kurt wanted to do something different. But, you know, Nirvana as it had been, the punk rock shouting, Kurt was done with that. Opinions about this album as an album are pretty uniformly positive, but I've heard some call it the easiest way into Nirvana, and then conversely, I've heard it as an album that captures their influences and Kurt's quirks. Where do you think it falls in Nirvana's body of work, and all these years later, what is its legacy? Well, its legacy is that it is the first place many people discover Nirvana. And your, your earlier quiz taker, I will buy a copy of Unplug for anybody that wants it. And if you don't like it, let me know. But it's a guaranteed any Nirvana fan or anybody that loves music will just simply love the way they approach these songs. Kurt essentially recrafts Nirvana. He recrafts the idea of punk songwriting in this one 90-minute segment. He kind of takes these songs that we know as these loud screamers and shouters, and he strips them down to sort of you know, untarnished blues songs, which is what they are at their heart. And in some ways, I think it's a great critical moment because he links modern rock and roll with stuff from the plantation and the ice houses where rock began. Nobody thought that was possible at an unplugged. To call Nirvana's unplugged the greatest unplug, it, that's like the understatement of the century. It's, it's the greatest thing that ever was on MTV. Do you have a favorite track on MTV Unplugged? One that kind of encapsulates the album for you? I love Something in the Way. I mean, that is a track that 
Where Do You Sleep Last Night. I love every song on this. It you can't you can't miss because you feel the vulnerability of Kurt like essentially almost breaking. He is breaking down on stage. And yet you also feel when he looks at you that you have the eye contact more than any other performance that Nirvana did. You feel you really get Kurt Cobain on stage. I'm relying on my memory here, but I remember you also said something interesting about his performance that night of Penny Royalty, that it had kind of, um, I don't know, an ache to it. Well, there is this kind of deep heart pain that you can feel in Penny Royalty, a song that Kurt had been working on for quite a while, and that when it finally kind of came together on In Utero, it's, it's a monster kind of pop hit. But he takes it unplugged, and you feel when you watch that performance that he's not maybe going to finish it. Um, and that's the kind of vulnerability that what's makes this so special. Charles Cross, thank you so much for joining You're me welcome. tonight. I really appreciate it. It's great to see you. Is contestant number eight ready to go? And here he comes. Hello. Hi. What is your name? My name is John. And uh, are you ready for question eight, John? I am so ready. All right, here we go. All of these 1997 hits feature rapping by the late Notorious B.I.G., but only one opens with him rapping. Which one? A, been around the world. B, mo money, mo problems. C, hypnotize. Or D, it's all about the Benjamins remix. Well, we know Puffy has to put his fingers on a lot of stuff. Right. So we're going to eliminate some of those. So we're going to go with C, hypnotize. And that is correct. The correct answer is C, hypnotize. Nice job. Come on. Most rap histories pair Brooklyn-born Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G., with Tupac Shakur, his West Coast counterpart-slash-rival-slash-fellow-victim of hip-hop's most fatal 90s war. But on the charts, there is a distinction between Biggie and Tupac. Pac scored his Hot 100 chart topper, the double-sided hit How Do You Want It and California Love, in the summer of 1996, while he was still alive. Biggie, on the other hand, never lived to see his name on top of Billboard's flagship charts. Killed in a Los Angeles drive-by shooting on March 9, 1997, the notorious B.I.G. went on to become that year's most omnipresent musical figure, as a ghost. Biggie's prophetically titled Life After Death, his Sean Puff Daddy Combs-produced second album, topped the Billboard 200 album chart less than three weeks after Big's murder. And it spun off two number one singles, making Biggie the only artist in history to top the Hot 100 twice posthumously. As my trivia question implies, Puffy was all over Biggie's singles. Only Hypnotized is credited solely to Big and features no rapping by Puff Daddy. 
On the summer jam, Mo Money, Mo Problems, Biggie is the lead artist, but Puffy and his fellow bad boy label rapper Mace do all of the rapping for the first two verses. Biggie doesn't show up until the song is more than two minutes old. My final guest tonight will walk us through these biggie hits. Oliver Wong is a professor of sociology at California State University, Long Beach, and has been writing on music and culture since 1994. He currently co-hosts the Maximum Fun podcast, Heat Rocks, which I was delighted to guest on recently. Would you please help me welcome my own West Coast counterpart, Oliver Wong. This is awesome. You're, I'm glad you're enjoying it. I know I am. Um, so as I said in my intro, Biggie and Tupac will forever be joined at the hip historically. But the flossy, peak Puff Daddy sound of these two hits seems specifically East Coast to me. As a West Coaster yourself, Oliver, and someone who was paying close attention to movements in rap in the 90s, what was your perception of Biggie at this imperial moment? Well, I was thinking about this because I think in the years between 94 and 97, really, there were no artists that I think, no single artists or groups that had an imperial phase beyond the collective of the Wu-Tang Clan because it was such a fervent era. And I just, I'm going to do a deep dive real quick. Is between 90, so 94 is Ready to Die, 97 is Life After Death. These are all artists who had debut major label albums during that time, besides Biggie. Nas, Outkast, Method Man, The Roots, Raekwon, Old Dirty Bastard, Jay-Z, Ghostface Killa, and Missy Elliott. And this doesn't include uh, artists onto their second, third, or even fourth albums like Mob Deep, The Fugees, De La Soul, UGK, and Scarface. All of which is to say, I don't think Biggie's rise into his imperial phase to me ever felt inevitable up until the moment that Hypnotize came out and then of course his death took it another step. I think what was to me the most intriguing part of that, that lead up is that him and Puffy, I thought made very smart decisions about how to put Biggie and keep him in the mix without overexposing him. So he was on Total's, um, uh, it's, uh, what's the Total song? Um, Can't You See, he was on Junior Mafia's Get Money and Players Anthem, he cameoed on Jay-Z's Brooklyn's Finest, and so he was very well poised coming into Hypnotize, and I think I remember most about when that song first hit. It just opens, and you were talking about how he, he, he this is the song that Biggie leads on. That song just opens like a thunderclap. And on a side note, it educated a lot of people that Herb Albert did more than just whipped cream and other delights. Um, and yeah, it was such a monstrous single. And sadly, what took things over the top into the imperial phase, as you put it, was his murder and his death, which I think really sealed everything and, and made him irresistible and um, undeniable for that for the rest of 97. So did Mo Money, Mo Problems, which is his other posthumous hit, did that feel like a categorically different hit to you? Or did it feel like a different side of the same coin? In a weird way, and it's, it's kind of weird to say for a posthumous hit, it felt almost like a victory lap. Because at that point, Life After Death, especially as a double album, was selling buckets. Biggie was everywhere in, in mass media, even though obviously he was gone. And maybe just because also the, the topic of more Money, More Problems, it's about the spoils of success. And so the song itself almost seeps in the fact that like Biggie was the biggest story in 97, for, for all the wrong reasons, sadly. 
Life After Death still ranks as one of the biggest selling rap albums of all time, so its commercial prowess is secure. But what do you think Biggie's legacy is in the timeline of hip-hop? What is his role in growing rap into the dominant force that it is today? Well, I'm going to start with a, a mildly hot take, which is to say that Biggie dying at the top of his fame but having a very small catalog means that we never had to suffer through him falling off, which I think happened to a lot of his contemporaries who who are all vying for uh, greatest of all time rapper status, but sure. their late mid-late career all had mediocre stuff. So you think you're your Jay-Zs, your Eminems, your Nas's, your Lil Wayne's, et cetera. We never had to see that happen to Biggie, and I think for that reason, those two albums and, and that 97 year really helped to fix his status in that sense. To answer your question, though, the thing that I remember most about Biggie and Tupac is that what took him to the top besides their lyrical talent was they were two of the most charismatic rappers that hip hop has ever seen, and Biggie Absolutely. in particular. And I think Biggie was, even more than Tupac, was the consummate crossover artist in terms of being incredibly appealing uh, to mainstream pop listeners without ever losing his reputation amongst the quote unquote you know, rap fanatics or hardcore hip hop heads. And that it's to such an extent that even 22 years later, anyone vying to be the best rapper alive is always going to be within Biggie's shadow and chasing this ghost, and largely, I think, in vain. This is excellent. Thank you so much, Oliver. Thank you. My pleasure. I've been in skills, crystal still, hot bills in Brazil. About a mill of ice grill, make it hard to figure me, liquor be kicking me in my asshole. Nearing the end of our program, we have one more trivia question, and I'd like to bring up contestant number nine. Hi there. Thanks for joining us. What is your name? I'm Bill. Bill, uh, are you ready for question number nine? Ready as I'm going to be. All right. That's the spirit. Which music legend who died in 2016 did not earn a posthumous number one album? A, David Bowie. B, A Tribe Called Quest's Fife Dog. C, Prince. Or D, George Michael. Gosh, that's a tough one. I, uh, I think it's going to be Fife. Sorry, the correct answer is George Michael D, but thank you very much for participating. If you all don't mind, I'm just going to uh, slip into something more comfortable. So this will be our last story, which I will take myself, and I must say it is appropriate that I am telling this not only at the pop conference, but in this beautiful space uh, that Mopop calls Sky Church. That's because three years ago this month, I and the PopCon organizers put together a loose lunchtime panel to commemorate all of the music luminaries who were dying that year. As an entire generation of baby boom rock icons ages into their twilight years, the 2010s in general has been tough for music fans. But 2016 felt particularly cruel. With the year barely a quarter over, and including a few luminaries who'd passed in the final month of 2015, we'd already lost everyone from David Bowie to Earth, Wind & Fire's Maurice White to Keith Emerson to Natalie Cole to Glenn Frey to Stone Temple Pilots' Scott Weiland to Motorhead's Lemmy to Merle Haggard to Jefferson Airplane's Paul Kantner to A Tribe Called Quest's Fife. So about a dozen PopCon attendees did our best to wake the dead with a series of mini eulogies of most of these artists. And all of this happened on April 17th, 2016. That date is important. If the conference had happened just four days later, we'd have had to absorb the devastating body blow of the untimely passing of Prince.
On the charts of 2016, music fans were doing their best to absorb the grief of so many music stars' deaths. I already talked earlier tonight about George Michael, whose Christmas 2016 death prompted a boost in his sales, streams, and airplay. But no one song or album dominated enough to top the charts, especially in the closing days of the holiday season. But the other three artists I mentioned in this trivia question all did top the charts from the great beyond. And touchingly, all three did so in ways that were true to their idiom. Famously, in an almost Cobain-like fashion, David Bowie prepared his own epitaph with his final studio album, Black Star, infused with themes of mortality and some of the spookiest, most freeform material of his long career. Bowie's 25th and final disc might rank as the most well-timed, well-coordinated swan song in rock history. As if knowing the album was his last will and testament, Bowie released it on his 69th birthday, then died two days later, on Sunday, January 10th, 2016. Tony Visconti, Bowie's longtime collaborator and the producer of Black Star, called it Bowie's parting gift. Black Star stormed up the charts, debuting at number one on the Billboard album chart and knocking out Adele's blockbuster 25 in the process. Like his friend John Lennon, who in 1980 had a similarly self-reflected, oddly well-timed new album in stores just in time for his passing, Bowie had given the public a new work by which to focus their grief. Unlike Lennon, who had scored several number one albums, both solo and with the Beatles, Black Star was, amazingly, the first chart-topping U.S. album of Bowie's long career, beating the number three peak of 1976's Station to Station, the number four peak of 1983's Let's Dance, and the number two peak of the 2013 comeback The Next Day. Bowie wasn't the only chart topper of 2016 to die right before a well-timed elegiac final album. Consider Fife Dog of A Tribe Called Quest. After a nearly two-decade hiatus, the rap troupe had quietly reformed only half a year before his death at age 45 after a long fight with diabetes. Fife reportedly didn't believe the sessions that he and his estranged friend and fellow MC Q-Tip were recording in secret would ever amount to so much as an EP, much less an album. But Fife recorded enough material in his last months to infuse Quest's final disc with his signature wit and exceptional flow. The fog and the smog of the media, the logs, false narratives of guys that came up against the odds. We're not just nigga rappers with the bars. It's kismet that we're cosmic with the stars. You bastards overlooking street art. Better yet, street smart, but you keep us off the chart. Some of the fucking numbers ain't your statistician. Fuck you know about true competition. Just like the AO picture on there talking about a hit. Before his passing, Fife even gave the album its cryptic title. One might call it abstract. We got it from here. Thank you for your service. That title seemed even more apt when the album dropped on November 11th, 2016, three days after the election of Donald Trump as America's 45th president. One night later, A Tribe Called Quest delivered a fiery performance on Saturday Night Live, joined by taped rhymes from their deceased brother and a large cloth effigy of Fife on stage. Eight days after that, Billboard announced that We Got It From Here had become A Tribe Called Quest's first number one album in 20 years, since 1996's Beats, Rhymes, and Life. 
Both Bowie and Fife went into their final studio albums knowing, at some level, they were not long for this world. It is safe to say Prince, however, did not operate under a similar mindset. He moved through life as if he'd be here forever. The passing of Prince Rogers Nelson was hard for many of us, maybe the hardest musical loss of 2016, which is saying something in a year when an icon like David Bowie dies. On April 21st, when news spread of his accidental fentanyl overdose at his Paisley Park home and recording studio in Chanhassen, Minnesota, radio stations filled with Prince music. The cellos on the otherwise whimsical Raspberry Beret blaring from my stereo that afternoon had never sounded so mournful. He had just issued a pair of new albums, Hit and Run, Phase 1, and Phase 2, the previous fall. Normally, an artist's newest album is the first to benefit from an untimely passing, like Bowie with his two-day-old Black Star, or John Lennon's roughly three-week-old Double Fantasy at the time of his death. But Prince's two hit and runs were not quite immediate enough or commercially potent enough to serve as the locus of fans' grief in the days just after his passing. Instead, Americans chose to celebrate Prince by consuming, well, a little of everything. Prince died on a Thursday, the last day of Nielsen and Billboard's tracking week. And yet, based on that one day of digital sales, six Prince singles re-entered the Hot 100 the following week. And that one day of sales gave Prince his first number one album in a decade, as the compilation The Very Best of Prince topped the Billboard 200 for the first time. Right behind it was Purple Rain, Prince's 1984 magnum opus, back in the top ten for the first time since 1985. The next week, with another seven days of sales, all six of these classic Prince singles were among the top 30 tracks on the Hot 100, from Let's Go Crazy to Little Red Corvette. And on the album chart, Prince held down five of the top seven albums. One classic LP, 1999, actually reached a new all-time peak of number seven, two spots higher than it had gotten back in 1983. If Beyonce hadn't picked that week to drop her new chart topper, Lemonade, Prince would have had five albums out of the top six. All of this monstrous chart activity would surely have thrilled Prince, who was a fierce competitor to his final days. He was also, rather notoriously, not a fan of streaming or digital music in general. Which brings me to the final quirk of Prince's posthumous chart rampage. The day he died, very little of his music was on YouTube, and essentially none on Spotify or the Apple Music streaming service. Although his label freed up some of this material on streaming services in the initial weeks after his passing, Billboard reported that the overwhelming majority of Prince's April and May 2016 chart action was driven by old-fashioned sales. I myself recall going to my local Brooklyn bar the night of April 21st, just hours after Prince's death, and finding the 20-something bartenders not playing Prince because they couldn't find his music on Spotify. I handed them my iPhone, and they connected it behind the bar to play my collection of MP3 files I had ripped from my old compact discs. 
In short, in the weeks immediately after his death, Prince got his fondest wish. He was not only commanding the charts, something he loved to do his whole life. He was compelling hundreds of thousands of Americans to buy music, the old-fashioned way. Sure, Tower Records and the Virgin Megastore were long gone by 2016. Maybe some of those print sales were CDs mail-ordered on Amazon, or even, heaven forbid, $1.29 MP3 downloads. Maybe only a fraction of those sales were at brick-and-mortar retailers, a Walmart here, a Best Buy there, maybe even an Urban Outfitters or a Rough Trade. But in 2016, the late Prince got a bunch of people who hadn't paid retail for music in a very long time to pay a visit to the record store. Perhaps this was Prince's final act of posthumous genius. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Hip Parade. My enormous thanks to everyone here at Mopop for their hospitality and support. Jason Porter, Robert Rutherford, Laura Hen Henningsen, Brian Epps, Anthony Angelora, Silas Stokes, as well as the entire Slate Live team, especially Faith Smith and Kirsten Holtz. Plus, a very heartfelt shout out to Pop Conference organizer-in-chief, Palmer of Nerves, Charles Hughes, and to show guest advisor and all-around inspiration, Ann Powers. My fearless producer is Chris Barube. He's been queuing up songs all night. Let's hear it for him. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. Our senior producer is TJ Raphael. And Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture Gab Fest feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. And please tell your friends. Thanks for listening. And thanks to all my friends here in Seattle for joining us here tonight. I look forward to marching the hit parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanthin. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.